We do appreciate uh, everyone's presence here today. We're glad for uh, the presence of each individual who's here, whether you're a regular member of the church here at Oak Mountain or a guest with us this morning. We're glad that you're here. We're going to talk a little bit about a couple of uh, events, one event, one statement from the life of David today. And so I want to turn to begin with to the book of Psalms. Well, we should know that we, you know, we take these occasions very seriously, uh, gathering de- together to worship God. It's a serious matter to us. Uh, we want to worship God in spirit and truth. We want to put all of our heart into what we do here and singing together and praying together and focusing in on the death of Christ on our behalf in the Lord's Supper. And uh, even though those individual components of our worship may only take a few minutes, each one is very serious to us, and we want to do the very best we can with it. And as I said, uh, worship God from the heart in all that we do. Uh, We'll be meeting again uh, tonight at uh, 5 o'clock, and the same holds true for our evening worship. Again, very serious occasion for us. Gather together to worship God and to encourage each other in the faith and in our lives as we live for Him, as we live our life uh, for Christ. And then again, we'll meet Wednesday evening at 7 o'clock. Again, uh, an, uh, an occasion of serious Bible study. And so this is not, uh, these things are not casual for us or trivial for us. They are of great importance to us. And really for us who are Christians, this is the highlight of the week, isn't it? When we meet together with those of like precious faith in the presence of God to remember Him and what He's done for us and to sort of renew our commitment to living for Him. And so, again, we want to take these things seriously. Even what we do in this part of our service this morning and our study together, we want to study the Bible in a serious way and see what God has to say for us in His Word. Let's just review a little bit of David's life. We're going to look at a psalm of David, the 139th psalm. But before we get into the psalm, just think a little bit about the life of David. We're introduced to David when he's still a young person. He's, he's a youth. Uh, he's keeping his father's sheep. He's a, a shepherd boy. And uh, he's the youngest of the eight sons of Jesse. We're introduced to him because God has rejected Saul as king. And in the words of God, he's chosen a man after his own heart. And of course, that ends up being David, the son of Jesse. Samuel goes to the home of Jesse, and eventually he anoints David to be king. Now, he doesn't begin his rule as king on that occasion. That comes a little bit later. But he's going to be a king. God has chosen him to to serve in Israel in, in that way. It's during his youth that we read about David fighting against Goliath. It's not much of a fight, really, is it? As David takes a a stone and he slings it in his sling and he kills the Philistine giant Goliath uh, with the help of God. Saul becomes so jealous at the attention that David gets as a result of killing Goliath that Saul wants to kill David. And, And David flees as Saul pursues him from place to place to place. David has a few opportunities to kill Saul himself, but he refuses to do that because Saul is God's anointed. And so David won't take advantage uh, to sort of uh, avenge himself of his enemy, who is Saul at this point. And um, uh, eventually Saul himself is killed, and David becomes king of Israel. 
He, he secures his kingdom against those who would have it for themselves, like Ishbosheth, for example. He makes Jerusalem his capital, and he moves the ark of God there. And so you might remember the story where he moves the ark of God <coughs> to uh, the city of Jerusalem. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, God establishes the dynasty of David. And he says that one of David's descendants will sit on his throne forever. <clears throat> in 2 Samuel chapter 11, we come to kind of a turning point in David's life and in David's reign. He commits adultery with Bathsheba, and then <clears throat> things after that began to become very difficult for David. His son Absalom tries to take the kingdom for himself. <clears throat> David leaves Jerusalem uh, as a result of Absalom's attempted takeover. And eventually David's able to put down the rebellion and secure the kingdom. Other problems will arise that have to be dealt with. And finally, at the end of his life, David takes what we might call an unauthorized census of the people God sends a plague upon Israel, and 70,000 people are killed as a result of that plague. And even though David made some serious mistakes, David is really the standard by which all the kings that follow him are judged. And uh, you might recall from time to time, we'll come across a king of, of Judah especially, who did what was right, in the same way that his father David did. And so he's the, he's the standard. The great king of Israel brings uh, <clears throat> security to the nation, and it thrives under his oversight. David is skilled in, in many ways. He's an effective king. He's a charismatic leader. He's wise in many ways. He's a warrior, very effective warrior, a musician. A lyricist. He's a, a poet. He's called the sweet psalmist of Israel in 2 Samuel chapter 23 and verse 1. And he's a man of a very deep faith. He has exceptional insight and uh, sensitivity into his own relationship with God, his personal relationship with God. And as you read the Psalms, that, that comes out where he talks about his own relationship with God. And he's very perceptive about that, very sensitive to his relationship with God. He's the ancestor of the Messiah. In fact, the Messiah would come and be known as the son of David. And so David is outstanding in that way, in that the, the Messiah will be his, his descendant. As we said a moment ago, David isn't sinless, and his sins are not concealed in the text. And several of them are brought out. He ate the sacred bread, which Jesus says was not lawful for him to eat. He committed adultery with Bathsheba and tried to cover it up. And then he took the census at the end of his life, among other things as well. It's hard to overestimate the impact that David has on the story of the Bible. And so it's worth our while to take a few minutes to review it before we look at this 139th Psalm. We're going to look at the last couple of verses in particular. Psalm 139, verses 23 through 24, which say, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts, and see if there be any hurtful way in me 
and lead me in the everlasting way. That's reading from New American Standard Bible. If you're reading from King James or New King James or something else, it reads slightly differently from that. But this is the, the psalm. David makes this request of God. He invites God, as you see in the first verse of this quotation, verse 23, to search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. Now that's a bold request, isn't it? That's that's quite a bold request. To ask God to search my heart and know me, to try me and know my thoughts. I want to make a couple of observations about this request. First of all, he asked God to search him and know his heart. He doesn't say, I want you to search me and know my words, or I want you to search me and know my deeds. Now that, that would be impressive enough. But what he says is, search me and know my heart. One author says, the heart is probably the most important anthropological word in the Scriptures. In describing what a person is, this is the most important word, according to this this individual's evaluation. It's the seat of the person's intellect, his thoughts, his emotions, his will, his conscience. It's what produces a person's word or deed. If you look over at the book of Luke, this is the book of Luke, chapter 6. Notice in verse 45 what Jesus says about the heart. The good man, out of the good treasure of his heart, brings forth what is good. And so a good man has a good heart and does what's good. That's what makes him a good man, his heart. And it's from the heart that produces, that comes, good works and good actions and good deeds and good words. And so the heart is what makes a man what he is. And then the last part of that verse says, the the evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth what is evil. For the mouth speaks from that which fills the heart. And so that the heart is the most important part of us in some ways, not the physical heart, although that's very important. It's this spiritual heart that involves the intellect and the emotion and the thoughts and the will and the conscience and all of that. Jesus says that evil thoughts and murders and adulteries and so forth, those things come from the heart. And so when David says, I want you to search my heart, he's asking God to make a search of the deepest, most hidden, secretest, if that's a word, place in his character. I want you to dig down deep, go deeper than my words, go deeper than my, than my actions, than my deeds, go all the way, penetrate all the way into the very deepest heart, very deepest part of my character, and I want you to investigate what's in there and search out what's in there so that you can know what kind of person I am. Now, that, that's a bold statement, isn't it? <laughs> How many of us are willing to make that statement? Lord, I want you to go down into the very deepest recesses of my heart, of my being, of my character, and I want you to see what's there. Now, sometimes we want to keep those things covered up. But David says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. Now, the second observation I'll make about this, this request is that he asks God to do that. Now, it'd be one thing to ask a family member. 
Now, now, I want you to examine my heart. You know, you might ask your wife or your husband, or maybe a child or a parent. Now, now I want you to kind of search me and, and investigate my character and tell me what kind of person I am. Or, or it'd be another thing to ask a good friend to do that, somebody that knows us well. But David doesn't ask a friend and he doesn't ask a family member. He asks God to do it. God, I want you to search my heart and I want you to try me so that you might know me. You see, nothing escapes God's notice. Now, we might keep secrets from our closest companions in life. A child might keep secrets from his parents. Parents might keep secrets from their children. Spouses might keep secrets from each other. But we're not going to keep any secret from God. And so when David says, God, I want you to search me, that's, again, a rather bold statement. He makes this request on other occasions. Look at the 26th Psalm. The 26th Psalm, we're going to begin in verse 1. Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity, and I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. Examine me, O Lord, and try me. Test my mind and my heart, for your loving kindness is before my eyes, and I have walked in your truth. I do not see with deceitful men, nor will I go with pretenders. I hate the assembly of evildoers, and I will not sit with the wicked. I shall wash my hands in innocence, and I will go about your altar, O Lord, that I may proclaim with the voice of thanksgiving and declare all your wonders. And so on this occasion, David says, I know I've been living in the right way, and so examine me and try me and test my mind and test my heart. And so David makes this request of God, not just on an isolated occasion, and not necessarily just when he's doing everything right, but just continually test me and examine me and know me. Look at the 17th Psalm. The 17th Psalm. Similar request is made in the first three verses. Hear a just cause, O Lord. Give heed to my cry. Give ear to my prayer, which is not from deceitful lips. Let my judgment come forth from your presence. Let your eyes look with equity. You have tried my heart. You have visited me by night. You've tested me and you find nothing. I purpose that my mouth will not transgress and so forth. And so David on this occasion says, I know that I've been doing what's right. You, now you've, test, you've seen that. You've tested me. You've examined me. And you know that I'm doing what's right. And so David asked the Lord here in the 139th Psalm, Search me, O, o God. Know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. If you go back to the beginning of this psalm, the 139th Psalm, what we'll find is that David knows God's already been doing that. And so search me. I know you've already been doing that. I know you already know me, but my request is for you to search me and try me. Look at the first few verses of the 139th Psalm. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. Those are the same words he uses at the end. Search me and know me. You've already been doing that. Oh, 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 Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down. You know when I rise up. You understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O oh Lord, you know it all. You have enclosed me behind and before. You laid your hand upon me. 
Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, it's too high, I cannot attain to it. So just think about this section here of the psalm. David acknowledges that God knows him thoroughly. He knows everything about him. In verse 3 he says, You're intimately acquainted with all my ways. You are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Now he mentions some of those things specifically. You know when I sit down. (laughs) You know when I rise up. You know my thoughts. You know my path. You know my lying down. You know my words. You know all my ways. Everything about me. And just my everyday activities as I go through the day, you know all about it. You know when I sit down. You know when I get up. You know when I lie down to go to bed. You know my thoughts. You know my words. You know you already know everything about me. And notice the different words that he uses here to describe God's knowledge of him. Search me. Know me. Understand me. Uh, It says here in verse 3, New American Standard Bible says, scrutinize me. It comes from a word that means to sift. Sift through my thoughts. Sift through my words. Sift through my deeds. And see see what's there. Again, verse 4, you know it all. And so notice what God knows about David. All, All aspects of his life. Nothing escapes God's notice. And David in the sixth verse acknowledges that God's ability to know him in this way, it's just, it's amazing. That this kind of knowledge is too wonderful for me. I I don't know how you do it. (laughs) You know, everything about me, my words, my thoughts, my deeds, even to the most detailed, trivial matters like sitting down and, and rising up. And so, God knows everything about David's life. Let's go to verse 7, where this is taken a little bit further. Now, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you're there. If I take the wings of the dawn and dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay hold on me. If I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me and the light around me will be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you and the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and and light are alike to you. And so when David says, search me and know me, he understands that now wherever I go, God knows all about me. And and if I go all the way to the east, you know, God, uh, God, no, God is, is with me there. If I go all the way to the, to the west, the re- remotest part of the sea, well, God is there as well. If I go as high as you can go up into heaven, God is there. If I go down into the underworld, God is there. I cannot escape God's presence, and I cannot hide my actions from God. E- even the darkness doesn't hide what I do from God. And so... When David says, search me and know me, he's saying, now I know you see me everywhere I go all the time. And nothing is going to escape your notice. And then verse 13, God knows everything about David's life. From the time, even really before he was born, all the way through his life. 
You form my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I'll give thanks to you, for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance. And in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. You knew me when I was still in the womb developing. And you know all about my life. And so, you know the very details of my life, when I sit down, when I rise up, when I lie down. You wish me with me all the time wherever I go. If I go out into the sea, you're there. If I go into heaven, you're there. Nothing escapes your notice. And you've known that all the way through my life, from, from the time I was conceived. That's a bold statement, isn't it? Know me. Search me. Try me. See if there's anything inappropriate there. And so all these things demonstrate how thoroughly God knew everything about David. What kind of person can make this statement? What kind of person can approach God, not, not a family friend, not, not, not you know, an acquaintance in this, in this life, can approach God and say, I want you to search me. What kind of person can say that? Well, it's a person with nothing to hide, isn't it? He's, he's, David's a man with nothing to hide. He's not trying to conceal his actions. He's not even trying to conceal his thoughts. Everything in the words of the writer of Hebrews is open and laid bare before the eyes of him with whom we have to do. David understands that. Everything I do is open and laid bare before God, and I want you to search all of that out and see what you find there. Proverbs 15 and verse 3, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. And so David is a man who knows that, He's a man with nothing to hide. He's not trying to conceal anything. Not that he thinks he's perfect, because he says, If there be any hurtful way in me, lead me in the everlasting way. If you find something there that shouldn't be there, I want you to get me out of that way and lead me in the right way. And so again, it's a man who has nothing to hide from God. <clears throat> it's an admirable way to live, isn't it? It's an admirable way to be. But it's typical of a man who has a heart for God, isn't it? David has a heart for God. That's why he asked God to search his heart. He's a man after God's own heart. And so he asked God to investigate him and search him and try him so that he might know him and lead him in the right way. It's typical. I, I thought about the Apostle Paul and a couple of statements the Apostle Paul makes. But it's typical of people who want to serve God and be right with God. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 4, God says, We've been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not as pleasing men, but God who examines the hearts. Our will is to please God who examines our hearts. But there was a time in David's life when he couldn't have made this kind of request, isn't there? And so we're going to look at another episode in David's life. Go back to 2 Samuel chapter 11. In 2 Samuel 11, we read about David's sin with Bathsheba. And so this is a grievous error, a terrible mistake, really a, 
This, this, is, uh, this is really bad. <laughs> this is a terrible thing that David did when you think about everything that was involved. The focus of the story is on David and his sin. Sometimes we think about, well, what was Bathsheba's role? Well, Bathsheba's role is not, not really the point of the story. When we begin to speculate about that, we're really kind of getting off track a little bit. It's David's sin that's the focus of the story. So that's what we want to focus on. There are really three main characters in this story. There's King David and Bathsheba and then Uriah. Uriah's character is contrasted with David's character. And so you see Uriah's character highlighted in the story, but it's not so much to lift up Uriah as it is to show how despicable David's behavior has been. Uriah is identified consistently through the story, not every time, but consistently, as Uriah the Hittite. We, we know him as Uriah the Hittite. Uriah is not even an Israelite. He's a Hittite. <laughs> In fact, if you look at Deuteronomy chapter 7 and look at the list of people that Israelites were not supposed to intermarry with, the first one on the list is Hittite. <laughs> That's the first one. Bathsheba marries him. He comes into Israel and actually becomes one of David's mighty men. And so just think about Uriah's character proves to be more righteous than David's character. Uriah's not even an Israelite. <laughs> He's one of those Hittites. And yet his character is better than David's. And that really highlights just how despicable David's actions are in this particular story. We'll just review it quickly. The army is in the field fighting for Israel, but David stays behind in Jerusalem. David sees Bathsheba bathing one evening. He sends for her and commits adultery with her, and she becomes pregnant. David is told about this and begins to try to cover it up. He's covering up his sin, or at least trying to cover up his sin. He calls Uriah, Uriah in from the battlefields, and he pretends to be interested in the battle. How's the battle going? How's Joab doing? Oh, that's just pretense. He really wants Uriah to come home, go and spend the night with his wife, and then when Uriah finds out Bathsheba's pregnant, he'll think that child is his, and everything. nobody will be the wiser. But Uriah refuses to do that. He says in verse 11, the ark in Israel and Judah are are staying in temporary shelters, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and to lie with my wife? By your life and the life of your soul, I will not do this. It's not fair, it's not right for me to enjoy the pleasures of home while my fellow soldiers are out there in the field sleeping in a tent fighting the enemy. So he doesn't go. David, oh no, what am I going to do now? I know what I'll do. I'll have a feast for Uriah while he's here. I'll get him drunk, and that'll weaken his resolve, and he'll go home, and he'll be with his wife. But that doesn't work either. And so what does David do? Well, he writes some instructions for Joab, the leader of the army. The instructions are, I want you to take the army into the fiercest part of the battle against the enemy. And then when things get the hottest and things get, get uh, the, the fiercest, I want you to withdraw from Uriah so that he'll be exposed and that he'll be killed. Now he wrote down those instructions. Who do you think he sent the instructions with? With Uriah. 
David knew Uriah's not going to read this. <laughs> He's already seen what kind of character Uriah has. And sure enough, he delivers the message. The instructions are carried out. Uriah is killed. Now David takes Bathsheba to be his wife. And it seems that nobody's the wiser. Everybody will think this child that Bathsheba bears will be the son of David. But verse 27, the chapter ends with a notable statement. But the thing that David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. See, God had been watching. And God saw what David had done. And the thing was evil in the sight of the Lord. In chapter 12, Nathan, the prophet, confronts David about it, exposes his sin. And David acknowledges it, of course. He says, I have sinned, but still he has to suffer the consequences. In the midst of all that, Nathan asks, Why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? You've struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You've taken his wife to be your wife. And you have killed him with the sword of the sons of Ammon. You know, uh, you think about it. David has broken every one of the Ten Commandments that deals with man-to-man behavior. He's murdered. He's committed adultery. He's stolen another man's wife. He's lied. And he's coveted. Let me ask this question. On this occasion, would David ask the Lord, Search me. Know me. Try me. I want you to look into the deepest part of my character, into my heart, where all my plans are, where all my, you know, my, my emotions reside, where I, the, the very deepest part of me that makes me the kind of person that I am, and I want you to see what you find there. We, no. On this occasion, he's not going to ask God to do that, is he? He knows what's in his heart. He's a totally different kind of person here than the 139th Psalm. What kind of person is he here? He's a cheater. He's a liar. He's a sneak. He's someone who has to cover up his actions. He has to hide them from others. He has to conceal them. To retain his godly image... He has to deceive the people around him. Now, we've got a word for people like that, don't we? (laughs) He wants to put forward one image when really in his heart and his actions and what's hidden that people don't know he's something else. And we've got a word for that, don't we? Well, what is it? He's a a hypocrite. And he's not going to ask God, search me, know me, test me, and see what you find there. Well, the point of all this is this. We have a decision to make. What kind of person are you going to be? Now, here are the two two statements in David's life set side by side. And we have a decision to make. Which kind of person are we going to be? What kind of person are you going to be? Now, you can decide that. You make that choice for yourself. You decide for yourself what kind of man you're going to be or what kind of woman you're going to be. And you can be the kind of man that has to sneak around and lie and deceive and conceal. You can be that kind of person if you want to be. Or you can live your life in a way that is kind of, my life is open. I'm a person of integrity. 
God, you search me. You see what's there. If you find something there that shouldn't be there, I want you to tell me what it is so that I can get it out of my life. And so we, each of us has a decision to make as to what kind of person we're going to be. Now I'll make some observations about this as we kind of bring all of this to an end. First observation is you might decide to be the kind of guy there on the, on the left. But I want you to know that God has no respect for hypocrisy. And God has no respect for those who pretend to be one thing and hide their true character. God has no respect for that whatsoever. I heard somebody say one time, now, idolatry is the big sin of the Old Testament. Hypocrisy is the big sin of the New Testament. And I don't know how you'd make that evaluation, but that observation has stuck with me. In Matthew chapter 23, Jesus sure is strong in his denunciation of the hypocrites. He says in verse 26, You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and of the dish, so that the outside may become clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You're like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. So you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. The strongest denunciation, one of the strongest at least, of Christ is directed toward people like this, toward hypocrites. In the 15th chapter of Matthew and in verse 8, Jesus says, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. The fact is, nobody admires a hypocrite. I mean, even human beings don't admire a hypocrite. Certainly God does not admire or respect a hypocrite. And so if we choose that path, we need to know, we need to know we're in trouble. The book of James speaks to this in James chapter 3 and in verse 17. The wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering and without hypocrisy. The wisdom from above is without hypocrisy. In 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 1, Therefore, putting aside all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and all envy and slander like newborn babes, long for the pure milk of the Word, so that you may, by it, you may grow in respect to salvation. And so, I want you to know, if you choose this side over here, that's the left side, just know that God has no respect for that at all. Try to think of somebody else like this in Scripture. Who would that be? Who, who in Scripture would be like David on this occasion? Uh, kind of a sneak. Somebody had to hide and conceal his intents and his actions. Well, it's not Joseph, you know. No, it's not Joseph. Not, not Daniel. We know it's not Daniel. You know who I thought of? Judas. In Matthew chapter 26, we find that Judas goes out, verse 14 went to the chief priest and said, What are you willing to give me to betray him to you? And they weighed out 30 pieces of silver to him. From then on, he began looking for a good opportunity to betray Jesus. From that point on, he began to look for a good opportunity. Well, the next thing we read, Jesus is meeting together with his apostles in the upper room, and he tells them, all of them are there, all 12, even Judas. One of you is going to betray me. Well, they all say, you know, they just can't believe it. Well, is it I? Is it I? Is it I? 
And even Judas himself said, is it I? It's not me, is it? Well, he knew it was him. <laughs> but he didn't want anybody else to know it was him. And so he joins in with the other. It's not me, is it? And we can become that kind of person if we want to be. A person that has to conceal and hide and cheat and sneak around. But it's no way to live. It would, in fact, be a miserable way to live, wouldn't it? We read from the 32nd Psalm a week or two ago, and David there is talking about his sin, the sin that he had committed. Don't know exactly what sin he has in mind in that place, but he talks about the condition of his mind before he confessed his sin to God. He says, My body wasted away. I was groaning all day long. Your hand was heavy on me. My vitality was drained away. Just all kind of uh, consequences of a guilty conscience. It would be a miserable way to live. Always worried that somebody's going to find out what, what you're doing. So you're, 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 you're hanging out with the wrong crowd at school and getting together with them after school and on the weekends and doing a few things you shouldn't be doing. Or you're together with your girlfriend or your boyfriend and, and you, you're, probably, you're going a little bit further, maybe a lot further than, than you ought to. And you're constantly worried. Are my parents going to find out? Are the people at church going to find out? That'd be a miserable way to live, wouldn't it? Looking over your shoulder, you got to keep track of the lies. I mean, you told your parents this, you got to remember that because the next lie has to be consistent with that lie. And, and so you, you got to keep track with all the deception and lies. You're lying to the people who mean the most to you, lying to your parents, lying to your spouse lying to your brethren. These are the people that mean the most to you. And because you're engaged in and doing things, you've got to try to conceal and cover up. You're, you're deceiving the people that mean the most to you. And you know what you've become. And so when you lie in your bed at night and everything is still, or you get up in the morning and look at yourself in the mirror, and when you get, begin to think of the kind of person you are, you have, you know, I know what I am. <laughs> I'm, I'm that sneak I, I, I'm the liar. I'm the deceiver. I, I know what I am. It makes you become the kind of person that, that you really don't want to be. You, you don't want to be that. And so don't behave in that way. That's not the life that God intends for us. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 15, God has called us to peace. Acts 24, 16, I do my best to maintain always a blameless conscience before God and men. God wants us to have joy and peace, not misery. And so live in a way, like this side of the chart over here, live in that way where you can be at peace. And you can invite God in and say, search me and know me. And then one other observation. We may be able to conceal our heart from others, but we can't conceal our heart from God. And we made notice of that passage in 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 27, right at the end of the story of David and Bathsheba, the thing that David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. God knew. He knew what David was doing all along. And David might have been able to hide his actions from other men for a period of time, but not, not from God. And I'll tell you what as well. If we persist in ungodly behavior, we're not going to be able to hide that even from men 
forever. I just don't believe that. I just don't believe that. And so if we persist in behavior that's ungodly and we continue in that, it's going to come out. And so don't, don't deceive yourself into thinking, I'm too clever, I'm too smart, I cover my tracks too well, nobody will ever find out. It's just not true. And certainly God knows. We're not going to be able to conceal our actions from Him at all. Romans 2 verse 16 tells us that there's coming a day when God will judge the secrets of men according to the gospel. And then Numbers 32, 23, be sure your sin will find you out. <laughs> Your sin's going to find you out. If we're that kind of person, involved in things we shouldn't be involved in, or we're thinking about becoming involved in those things, don't, don't become that. You're going to become the kind of person that you really don't want to be, and certainly not the kind of person that God wants you to be. Live in integrity. Be honest. Make good choices. Always be the kind of person that pretty much says, look, just examine me. Look at what I do. Look at what I say. Look at my heart. If you find something wrong there, I'll correct it. But be that kind of person who's able to be in, in confidence. Invite God in to make a search of their heart. So we have a choice to make. We have a choice to make. What kind of person are you going to be? What, what kind of person will you be? Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we're thankful for the opportunity to look into your word today and to study it and, and see its message for us, to see your message for us that's revealed in, in your word. Father, we pray that we will always be the kind of person who walks in openness and integrity and honesty, that that's not fearful of what others might find in our heart and our behavior, but but the kind of people that make good choices so that we can walk in confidence and we can walk in integrity. And, and our, our lives are, are open, not only before other men, but, Father, especially before you. Father, we, we invite you in as well today, the, into our hearts, to search us and try us so that you might know us. And, Father, if you find there things that should not be there, attitudes that should not be there. We pray, Father, that you'll show those things to us so that we might correct them and eliminate them from our heart so that our lives might be in accord with your will. Father, your Son said, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And so, Father, we pray your help in making our hearts pure. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're with us today, you're not a Christian.